0: From Downing Street to Dutch Farms, storms are brewing across the pond. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. So before we launch that Deep Dive, I want to tell you a couple of things. First of all, thank you so, so much for leaving me what is now more than 50 reviews on Deep Dives with Monica Perez And as promised, I put the first and hopefully not the only Chewing the Fat with Fat Mitch. It's up there exclusively on Deep Dives with Monica Perez. It's commercial free, of course. And uh, it's, you know, it doesn't have a lot of polish first time out of the gate, but I think it's got potential. So tell me what you think. And it's packed, packed with shocking information. So it's definitely worth listening to. Also, I got two comments already on my last deep dive, and I thought it would be interesting to read them to you because they were both very interesting comments. If you have a comment on a particular show or just general feedback on the show, feel free to email me at MonicaPerezShow at gmail.com. Okay, so Byron, who you probably all know and love, if you know Fat Mitch from Zoom Calls, you probably know Byron from Zoom Calls. He says, and this is about the last deep dive I did, which was the fact that there was a lot of distraction from the Roe versus Wade decision to a shooting in Chicago, big shooting in Chicago, mass shooting in Chicago on the 4th of July. Meanwhile, nobody was really talking about the actual gun control legislation that came down from the Senate, which had three big elements to it. If you want to go back and listen, it's the boyfriend loopholes closed. Red flag laws means law enforcement can basically get your guns away from you for a year, at least. You should listen to it. And then incorporating juvenile records into background checks, especially for 18, 19, and 20-year-olds. And then I went into all the things that make you a prohibited person from buying a gun. And you'd be surprised. I mean, using marijuana at all? Uh, What was another one? getting a dishonorable discharge from the from the service. There were a few that were really marginal and we should know about them. So Byron says, uh, we are increasingly bombarded with the false premise that tragedies in hindsight were preventable, not only preventable, but preventable by altering, but a single factor. This reasoning is unable to withstand any degree of logical analysis beyond the childishly superficial. I think we get a lot of that. We need to be very careful about this. Tyranny emerges when people beg for their own subjugation. The narrative that's being propagated is one whereby the masses cry out for the bar to be lowered by which one can legally acquire a firearm. When we cry out for lowering that bar, we are contemplating how it applies to others, not ourselves. In the attached, the article said says officials have said they approved the gun permit because there was insufficient basis to deem CRIMO? CRIMO? It's spelled CRIMO. Dangerous, with the only record on his file, a 2016 ordinance violation for possession of tobacco. That meant CRIMO was legally able to buy the weapon used in Tuesday's massacre. So back to Byron, he says, so what's being implied here is that we should employ incredibly stringent And subjective standards by which to allow legal gun ownership. The tobacco possession apparently is above where that line should be in terms of objective standards. What we're left with are subjective measures like a social media scan that would key in on certain words and phrases with inadequate recognition of context to deny those who seek legal gun ownership. This is a very slippery slope, and if implemented, shouldn't reasonably be expected to be limited to firearms. Lastly, we also have to consider the validity of another premise that is strongly implied by prevalent narratives. (laughs) This is a good one that there exists a category of person who is capable of affirmatively planning and willfully carrying out a mass murder, the most serious offense known to man who would be dissuaded from doing so due primarily to their own unwillingness to violate the law in a relatively minor way, i.e. illegal firearms possession. By this logic, we should lower the speed limit around banks to thwart bank robbers' escapes. (laughs) Ah, so true. So true. All right. So that's Byron's biting analysis. Okay, from Sasha, due to my position and career in mental health and specifically psychiatric hospitals, I see a slippery slope without much training or guidance and a broad brush stroke. You should look into what George is doing with HB 1013. Now allows police to deem people mentally ill and take them to psychiatric facilities for evaluation. It was rolled out with little to no training for officers. Most have no understanding of psychiatric illness. This would allow an officer with no training to take a person to an emergency receiving facility for evaluation, probably a commitment for evaluation, because they deem that there is probable cause that the person is mentally ill. Currently, they do a ton of interactions with the mental health community, but can only take someone for evaluation if they are in imminent danger to self or others, not probable cause for mental illness. For a hospital, it's not very hard to justify Committing a person when an officer brings them to the doorstep of a facility and gives their report of what they saw and what they brought them, why they brought them in. Kind of a hearsay report, but better safe than sorry approach for the facility licensed counselor that will be held accountable if something were to happen. Currently, a 1013, which is the Georgia version of the Baker Act, allows 72-hour hold for evaluation, which would be considered hospitalization in most red flag laws, in my understanding. ERs and hospitals are terrified of the influx we're likely to experience from the passage of this law. Personally, I'm terrified of the government overreach as well. So there's a lot there that might be one of those things that you got to go back and listen to twice, but he's, he is in the mental health uh, business and this is his fear. So I think we should take it seriously. I have not dug into Georgia HB 1013, but it sounds like it's not alone in this approach. And some of the stuff I covered, which is why he's writing this to me, some of the stuff I covered on Wednesday's show talks about the mental health element that is uh, being funded alongside the red flag laws being incented with big funding. So, okay. Okay. That was a lot of aside, so it's going to be a long show, but I'm not going to have a deep dive until I get back from my mom's like, so next week there will be no deep dive. So I'll make, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to let my let my deep dive flag fly today, and we're going to hit a bunch of things. Uh, there is one more crazy tidbit, speaking of Georgia, before we get into the meat of the show. The Georgia Guidestones? Gone? I don't know if you all read the story about that, but the Georgia Guidestones are the things that maybe people think were Ted Turner put up there. Was it 50 years ago? I don't even know. Nah, maybe like 40 years ago. It's got 10 tenets on there for like the future of humanity, including reducing the population to 500 million, highly eugenicist, highly one-worldy population reduction stuff. It's kind of a smoking gun. Like who the heck put that up there? Were they kidding? I doubt it. And now it's gone. So I wondered if this was going to be domestic terrorism, what was the story? And witnesses said they heard explosions around 4 a.m. Then authorities removed the entire thing by the end of the day because they said it was a danger. Like it's in the middle, like you could just coordinate off, maybe put a guard there. But what if it's, I mean, I think it was a crime scene. There was explosions. People saw a car or a truck running, uh, driving away. And this is one of those things where they say, okay, the the Georgia Guidestones have been destroyed. There was an explosion and they're destroyed. But what they leave out is that they were destroyed by a decision that someone in authority made. It's like when the Uvalde School was uh, is being demolished or the one in Connecticut demolished, power outages in Texas. These are things that are being described as these, wow, cataclysmic events, but oftentimes they are... The, the reason they really came to fruition was uh, the decision of somebody in, in authority. It was helped along by policy. So a lot of times these are elements of the perfect storm. Oh, and then someone pulled the plug on the power in Texas. <laughs> you know, and then it all went out. It's like, well, that could have been a, a, a... You maybe didn't need a perfect storm if some policymaker was making the decision to turn all the power off. And I believe that is what happened with that big Texas thing a year or two ago. So... That actually folds into my big story, and we are going to have to take a swim across the ocean for this one. Boris Johnson resignation caps stunning fall from grace. I mean, think about that. Boris Johnson resignation caps stunning fall from grace. So first of all, it's a resignation anyway, in a system that doesn't really need resignations. He resigned one month after getting a vote of confidence from his own party and within three years of getting the biggest landslide in a general election, uh, if I understand this, the way it works correctly, in 40 years. So the people in the last election gave him the biggest landslide since probably Margaret Thatcher 40 years ago. And then just a month ago, he had a a vote of confidence from his party. And the way it works there is the prime minister is really the head of the party. So he's going to stay in place until the party elects a new head. And then that person will take his place as the prime minister. So there were a couple of. Weird little tidbits I noticed, like the number 33 popped up a couple of times. I thought that was kind of weird. There was a Guardian video, the 33 hours that brought Boris Johnson down in three minutes. And uh hat tip to BP, a tweet at JinxIt, 33 resignations in 24 hours. Never has this been seen in politics. So what you got to ask yourself is, what is the distraction for? Now, I don't – it's up to 50 resignations now, but some of those resignations were people who were only in the position for a day or two. So I didn't dig into the 50 resignations, but when somebody is in the position and then resigns after a day or two, then the first resignation of that post is kind of like double counting, right? And it seems like what they're trying to do is gin up this big flurry of pressure on Johnson to resign because the cabinet – Is resigning, but he just got a vote of confidence from his party. Like this is a tad artificial. And he said, I'm not gonna resign, but like the noise, the noise was just too much. And he had to do it. And it and it feels like they just ginned up commotion on purpose to bring this to head to make it look like it was. Organic, but again, he made a decision to resign. They made a decision to resign. It's like the Georgia Guidestones and the parish Somebody made a decision to make this shocking, catastrophic thing happen, and it did not seem to me to be an organic result of stuff that's going wrong with him. And and the reasons for his like his stunning fall for grace is seemed kind of minor compared to what it could have been. So. The biggest thing, the most recent catalyst was that one of the, I think it was cabinet member, Chris Pincher, was, I guess he resigned because there were two, there were allegations or he admitted to drunkenly groping two men. And I guess he had had... A history of this kind of behavior. I don't know if it was a robust history, well-known history. I don't know. They say Bojo did know about it, but he forgot. I don't know. He should never have appointed him. Um, there's a lot of Trumpian kind of language, like Johnson's erratic relationship with the truth is what people are sick of. A lot of sound bites, even though it seems like he was pretty popular. So the other thing was another, like, complete nothing burger, in my opinion, was Partygate, where supposedly he had parties in Downing Street during COVID lockdown. But I found this very – and that's it. Like, not like he works for Klaus Schwab or he he suspended everybody's civil rights – for, you know, months, if not years on end. I mean, nothing real, right? Nothing. Who cares about the parties? I mean, that's just, that's a symptom of the problem. That's not what the problem, but listen to this. He became the first British prime minister to have been sanctioned for breaking the law while in office after receiving a fixed penalty notice for breaching COVID-19 regulations. I'm not sure if that's a, a nuance, but I think it's, I think it's that was what he did. He received this penalty notice or a sanction for breaking the law, but he was the first. So that's another Trumpian thing where Trump was the first to be impeached twice. You know, there's just something very set you up to be the demon kind of thing, and he may even be a kind of sacrificial wolf because he was a jerk. He did that thing. These elite people uh, breaking protocol, but if they are going to basically take down the highest guy in the land for breaching COVID protocol, you know, who's nobody's defending him. He's a sacrificial wolf. And first they came for the jerks, you know, then they came for us. So I watch stuff like that. I don't like it. Oh, so here's another thing is that he said he would step down until a new person could be put into place, which would be a couple of weeks. And some people are asking that he be – I don't know what we call removed from power anyway. And in order to do that, I guess they want to have another no confidence vote. But since he just passed one a month ago, they can't have another one unless they change the rules. But if that reminded me of Trump getting impeached after he lost the election, you know, just kind of kicking him in the butt on the way out the door. Like there's, it's unnecessary unless you're trying to write a historical narrative. But the thing is, with all this commotion, it was started by two cabinet members resigning for, you know, I don't think very significant reasons. And so let me tell you about these guys. One is Sajid Javid, S-A-J-I-D, J-A-V-I-D. I I should have looked that up first. I'm going to say Sajid Javid. That's what I'm going to say. I'm going to put the emphasis on the last syllable okay so the he is the health secretary he might be in his own right a contender to be the next pn that's the funny thing these two guys are now in the top five of people being cited as the likely contender to take the reins to be elected by the conservatives so the thing is this isn't a general election uh i actually how does it work i think i wrote it down so it says, okay, here it goes. It goes, the rounds of the members of parliament in the party vote and iterate down to where there's only two candidates left. Then all the conservative party members in the country vote on which of them is the leader of the party. So I don't know if it's as simple as being registered in the party to vote. And then in general election, you can vote for whoever. So it would be labor or liberals or Tories, conservatives, whatever. And then there was some noise that there are some local elections coming up and they feel that Johnson being the head of the conservative party is going to cost them elections. I'm not familiar enough with their what's going on over there to know if that's true or it's just being made up. But the other guy who set this, these dominoes falling, Rishi Sunak. He's kind of a little sketchier guy, and in the article I read about, like, the five top contenders, his face was first. And I assume that he's, like, a hero because he got rid of Bojo, right? So they could easily vote for him. He was the chancellor of the Exchequer. I believe Winston Churchill was, too. And he's very popular right now because he's getting credit for handing out all the stimmy checks. So you got that. And he, you know, he has just one of those super deep state backgrounds, Fulbright Scholar, studied at Stanford. His father-in-law, this was kind of interesting to me, his father-in-law founded Infosys, which is a big uh, tech company in India. That guy's mother is a member of the public health care initiatives of the Gates Foundation. And that Infosys has a foundation in the U.S. and other places too. But the one in the U.S. is all about getting girls and minorities to code like Girls Code, I, people have pressured me to get my daughter into that, and um, I believe because she had a Spanish surname, because a friend of mine who also applied who did not have a Spanish surname did not get in, and they are involved in initiatives that all schools should have the internet, so... We're going to get to that later in the show about everybody having the internet. So we have actually talked about this before. Allison McDowell talks about the open air prison where kids are basically the slaves who code, or even if they don't know it, they're in the metaverse. They're in Minecraft coding or, or building the world that we are going to, it will be this open air prison. Very, very interesting. So that's his story. It's kind of sketchy, I think. Um, but Bojo's, Story is sketchy, too. I've talked about him before. He was born in the U.S. I mean, not that that matters, but in 1964 on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, they moved back to England briefly, but then were back in February 66, relocating to D.C., where, where Bojo's father, Stanley, who wrote some sketchy book about, like a pandemic, if I recall correctly, he was employed with the World Bank and... and Uh, took a job with a policy panel on population control. So I don't know what all this backstory is with Bojo, what it means. But I do think it's kind of weird that he got his start, despite like his extremely deep state, big time connections. He got his start writing for the Daily Telegraph and introducing basically the concept of Euroscepticism in the 90s with really bombastic stuff from, you know, if Wikipedia is to be believed. So uh, his story's sketchy, the guy who I, you know, may well replace him, I assume he's going to, I guess he would be the first PM of Indian descent, I think would be, uh, unless I think they're Indian, I do believe, so of Indian descent, he's definitely born in the UK. Uh, anyway, so... The government issues that they're facing, so I don't even feel like the UK is really being depicted as being in these massive crises, they may tell you. I mean, the political challenges I saw cited were rising inflation, which I'm beginning to think is just a spike, that they are that they spiked it on purpose with shocks, that they'll never fill that debt collapse in, and they're just trying to get that interest rate up. So I don't think we're going to get into a real long thing. I could be wrong. What the hell do I know? But uh, they say the Labour Party is starting to get wings, and that makes the Conservatives nervous. And this is what made me think there isn't that much going on. If the biggest deal is a renewed attempt by the Scottish National Party to push for a repren- referendum on independence for Scotland. In this world of like rogue disappearing, of Brexit, I wouldn't be surprised. And that would be actually a really interesting sign to me if Scotland were to get independence finally. So there have been referenda before. If they were to get independence, it would make me think that the smalling of communities is on the agenda. And maybe here, instead of just fomenting rebellion to crack down on it, they're re- fomenting it to get secession, to divide and conquer. I worry about that with the Catholic Church, that there's a schism brewing. You take a billion plus people, that's power. You cut that in half, that's less power. That makes you, instead of one of you know, the top number one religion, maybe it's number four right or something like that I don't I don't remember the numbers but it's up there so the contenders are this uh, Rishi Sunak Sajid Javid <laughs> I'm going with the hat a chick named Suella Braverman who's the attorney general Jeremy Hunt the head of the parliament's health committee during covid so i can't imagine that guy they say he's like well respected it's like i I mean i don't think it rises to the level of fauci running but i imagine he might be a polarizing character but let me tell you the guy i would puke all over ben wallace defense minister and ukraine hawk who was tasked with bringing princess diana's body back from paris after she was killed. Can you imagine the kind of cover-up that went around that? I mean, the story of her death, even... I'm, I'm not even sure if it has, like... I think it has an MLK element to it where she wasn't even really dead. <laughs> you know, like straight out of Monty Python. I'm not dead yet. So, really, really sketchy, that guy. Yikes. And I was thinking that... So, Bojo's still in place. And he said he wasn't going to pass any major laws. Nothing like that. Uh, and... And so I'm thinking, okay, so if he's in place but isn't passing any major laws, what would that matter? What could he what harm could he possibly do? Well, the guy in the driver's seat is the guy who has to deal with emergencies. He doesn't have to change the route. But if something gets in the way, he's going to have to deal with that. so if there if there's an escalation of the Ukraine war coming, he is as lame duck as you could get, and he has that power, or he could pull a Go a caesar thing and say well it's an emergency i can't step down now so if you were to back that up with this ukraine hawk i feel like that might go hand in hand with all the stuff that's going on with us bringing troops into poland the real like i know people deployed there who are being deployed there and it doesn't help that brzezinski's son is the ambassador to poland that's kind of uh, not a good sign. So I don't know if this is pointing in that direction at all. I, I'm thinking the guy who led the charge here is the guy who is poised to be the next PM. But, I, you know, that's it. That list of five seems to be enough to start out with. Okay, so that's what's going on with England. I just have a couple of kind of quick hits-ish <laughs> compared to that, just to tide you over for a week without a deep dive. There was unrest in the Netherlands, you know, the the Dutch, Royal Dutch Shell. They say that they've got some real sketchy royal, deep royals, let's call them. So there's unrest there among Dutch farmers. It was triggered by a government proposal to slash emissions of pollutants like nitrogen oxide and ammonia by 50% by 2030. The concern is that, to environmentalists, is that fertilizers contain a large amount of nitrogen oxide. That is laughing gas. While livestock produces ammonia in their urine and feces, provincial governments have been given a year to formulate plans to achieve this goal. This goal, this 2030, 2030, agenda 2030 goal. The reforms are expected to include reducing livestock, buying up some farms whose animals produce large amounts of ammonia, and many farmers fear that the ruling coalition's reforms will simply put them out of business. Now, why on earth would you do this when you're worried about food shortages? This is how you get perfect storms that are all driven by a bunch of policies that are what I'm calling pro-cyclical. I mean, pro-cyclical is a real word, but it's usually applied to economics. But this is a pro-cyclical policy or whatever. It's an exacerbating policy. And right now is when that fertilizer is being interrupted, interfered with. This is what's going to cause the food shortages, is the Russian fertilizer not being able to get to where it's going. And it is nitrogen-based fertilizer. I think probably all fertilizer has this byproduct here. So I don't know. I don't know if they're taking this opportunity where there are shortages in the fertilizer to roll out people not being allowed to use the fertilizer. But I was looking into it and I was thinking, like, is there any other way to deal with this, the nitrogen oxide and in the atmosphere? And apparently there are solar chimney power power plants that can remove methane and nitrous oxide. So all the cow stuff. And I, I don't buy that this that these things are bad. It's clearly to me just to try to get rid of meat, which is good for you. (laughs) It's good for you. And it's not like you can grow 15 times the amount of soybeans, um, you know, as you can pounds of cow. But in order to be an animal, you need 15 times the soybeans as you need cow. (laughs) You have to eat a, but like as many times, you know, the cows are converting it into animal protein for you. They graze on all that land to turn it into animal protein, which you then can use as animal protein. If I understand it correctly, remember, you can email me if you think I got it wrong. So they say the only problem with this solar chimney power plants, which produce energy, they take this stuff out of the air and they make energy with it because the sun breaks this stuff down oh, in enough amount of time. The sun would break it down in the atmosphere. This hastens that process. And uh, it's also called a solar updraft tower power plant. But they say the only problem is funding and whatever. If the government's pushing this down, it's effectively a tax on their people. I'm not promoting the solar chimney power plant. I'm just saying you don't have to just devastate these farmers, maybe. Anyway, what they did is 25 tractors parked outside a distribution center for a large supermarket chain. It was I saw pictures of tractors on bridges. It seemed kind of reminiscent, quite reminiscent of the Canadian truckers. And what I thought was sketchy about the whole thing, though, this is the problem, is that... Let me read you two passages that I think tell different stories. One is, traffic authorities warned motorists to prepare for delays and possible slow-moving tractors on the nation's highways, but said that there were few problems early Monday for commuters, possibly because many people opted to work from home rather than get stuck in traffic. Okay, fair enough. Here's an an alternative (laughs) reading. This is a different passage. On Sunday, confronted with the possibility of large-scale protests, the Dutch police advised people to work from home, saying they are ready to intervene should the situation get out of hand. Okay, that's two different things. It's like, uh, we think the situation is going to get out of hand and we're ready to take action. So you might want to stay home. Okay, so that's maybe why people stayed home. And then the police delivered on that threat. And again, we've got two different stories. Local police claimed tractor drivers attempted to drive into officers following a stop. A threatening situation arose. Warning shots were fired and targeted shots were fired, police said. The tractor was hit and three suspects were later stopped and arrested, but no one was injured in the encounter. However, footage of the shooting has since emerged on social media and does not appear to show any attempted ramming. Instead, the clip depicts two vehicles driving off from the scene, neither coming close to hitting any pedestrian, and officers just opening fire on the second one as it sped away. So they did deliver on that this-got-violent thing, but it sounds like it was just a decision they made to do that to support this narrative. And I know this seems like another like tangent, but side by side, what are the likelihood? I got two articles about the Netherlands side by side, but the second one got way more press than the first one in the mainstream media. And it goes to actually one of the elements of the truck of the farmer story, Netherlands poised to make work from home a legal right. So here they are telling people to stay home, demonstrating that it's dangerous to go out, just like our 4th of July incident. It says, after COVID-19 lockdowns, companies and governments grapple with the thorny question of continued remote working. Okay. So they've set it up and now they're just going to hit it off the tee. All right. So the reason that this alarms me, actually, I don't love it, is I'm worried that, I mean, I've seen the signs of this. This will lead to a global market for labor. And it also can lead to a total disconnection from, so right now we have a disconnection of like legal entity and headquarters. And so I think like Ireland is really favorable toward, they have favorable tax laws for corporations and they said they did that because it would attract companies. Well, companies just domicile there like they do in Delaware, but their headquarters don't move. That's a complaint that I've heard. I don't know if it's been rectified, but so now you can not only disconnect the legal entity from the headquarters, you can also disconnect that from the workforce and dis- disconnect the workforce from each other. Okay. And this matters because unless you put up borders, unless you put up like virtual borders, your company can't hire someone that doesn't live within proximity of what? The bricks and mortar, the legal documents. I don't know. I don't think the Netherlands, my guess is they have very stringent labor laws, high minimum wage, stuff like that. I'm guessing that people in the Netherlands are not going to be the ones to fill the jobs anymore there. So then what do you do? You have this incredibly rich, spoiled, I don't know about them, but I'm just saying, let's say I'm going to stereotype Europe, population, and you're going to need safety nets. You're going to need universal basic income. Uh, And then what? Do you... Do you let them have unlimited children? Well, what if they're not having children? What if the birth rates have plummeted because of all the things that are going on right now and they're preparing for having to find other sources of labor? They don't think that you'll be able to have your labor come organically anymore. I personally think that this will lead to a couple of crazy things, or I should say, you know, big things with broader implication, one, international labor laws that are going to say, look, the people of Netherlands can't work now because you don't have higher minimum wage laws and yada, 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 right? So we need to enter the international global, the global labor market is leading to the call for international laws. I expect that. Similarly, I think you'll have calls for, and you've, we've already seen this, calls for international corporate tax laws, tax regime. Because they'll say you, you're domiciled in Ireland, your headquarters are in Netherlands, but your workforce is in India, and that's not okay. So you're gonna have to. Be, and and I know they have tax regimes like that, but they're gonna want to have a universal, or or a model tax regime. You know what I mean? It's definitely all pointing to globalization. And another thing that will come of this probably is that the internet will be a right. It might be a right there now, but remote work depends on. Really good connectivity, and I've heard them say before that food, water, clothing, shelter, and the internet are necessities that need like human rights intervention I mean it's not it's a it, what it is is a way to plug you into the matrix, make sure you're propagandized. That's what that's all about, and so I feel like that is part of that and then my husband said, "Yeah, who's going to flip the burgers <laughs> But who will flip the burgers, a libertarian might ask, So, or, or answer. So I guess that he is not aware of Flippy, the burger-flipping robot. We've talked about Flippy before, and there is a Flippy, I don't know if his name is Flippy, in my town. There's a burger-flipping robot in the a, in a local burger joint, not even a chain. So I feel like all this stuff came together, the great resignation, stimmy checks, vax mandates, COVID fears, all contributing to labor quitting, creating this this absolutely temporary, artificial, perfect storm of highly demanding labor in a labor shortage environment. We're about to hit probably a global recession, right? Like they're just rebounding us all over the crap in place. You know, Fed is supposed to smooth things out, right? Isn't that what they promised us a hundred years ago or more to like what? We needed this for, and we're gonna we're about to be ping pong balls. But they're using this moment in time, the Great Resignation, the remote stuff, to to globalize the labor force, to separate us out. There's a lot in that little headline about the Netherlands. So there you go. That was I. I feel like that was a rapid fire deep dive. I think you might not have to listen to that one at two times speed. <laughs> uh, and don't forget. So you might be lonely for a deep dive, but I've got a whole bunch of stuff coming down next week. I'll do my normal three shows Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the morning on the Prop Report feed, but in the Deep Dive feed. I'm going to have at least, I, I would say, probably five shows commercial free. And then we already put up Chewing the Fat with Fat Mitch. So you can check that out on Deep Dives with Monica Perez right now. And um, if you have any comments on the show overall or on this episode, feel free to email me at MonicaPerezShow at gmail.com. I am Monica Perez. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it. And feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez Show.